Well, good morning, everyone. It is great to see everyone who's here today. It's good to see a full crowd to worship God, and I know that He is pleased because we are here, because we are doing these things according to His will, both in spirit and in truth, and I hope that's the case for you. I want to thank Mike for leading that last song. Uh, some of the things we uh, sing about there are directly related to what Hebrews 13 and all of what's led up to it is going to apply for us in this chapter. So I appreciate those words. And uh, I know I was able to sing them this morning with a full heart because of the study that I've done. And I hope you will be able to do the same after this as well. It's good to see everyone. Glad to see our visitors here. Good to see Chris and, Chris, Chris and Kristen here. So uh, looking forward to this study in Hebrews chapter 13. If you were just uh, here passing through, we have... Uh, or maybe you haven't been here for the whole study. Every month for the, over the last year during my study, I've covered a chapter or half a chapter of Hebrews. And we are finally coming to the final chapter, uh, the end of this book, this letter written to the Hebrew Christians. And, uh, and so far in this letter, he has addressed their need to hold on to Christ. To not drift away from him, to not go back to Judaism, but to hold on to Christ. We talked a couple of lessons ago about how they needed to take heed to this, this gospel, to closely hold to it, and to listen to the correction that was coming their way, because they're not being corrected by just anyone. They're not just being corrected by an Old Testament God who would ju bring judgment with fire and brimstone. They were coming to a loving God who we learned is given in this image in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. We come to a better message. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. So we learned right up leading up into chapter 13 that we need to serve God being aware of, yes, his greatness, but two of the great plan that he has laid out for us in this new law, this law of grace and forgiveness and liberty. And so, after all of that, Hebrews chapter 13 says, basically in response and in application, let brotherly love continue. So remember, he's addressing Hebrew Christians who were raised under the old law. And so, I think his connection here, he's almost mirroring the Old Testament. He ended talking about the greatness and uh, the love we need to have for God because of God's great plan for us in the last chapter and now he's going to springboard in this chapter into things that apply to uh, loving your neighbor as yourself. So we learn that all the commandments in the Old Testament hang on these two things. Love your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We learn in the New Testament. And the second is like it, Jesus said. Love your neighbor as yourself. On those two teachings, every law and everything from the Old Testament hangs on it. And I think he, he's making a connection here for them to bring them back. To not just let their praise to God go vertical, but to now let that perspective on God's goodness toward them go out toward their brethren. He says, let brotherly love continue. He's going to give us in this study about 
10 I've kind of classified as 10 foundations of their faith that they need to focus on. So as they are working and growing in their uh, service to God and as they're trying to hold on to Christ, he reminds them of practical things they need to be doing and honoring and thinking about. The first one is brotherly love, and this is going to be an umbrella term for several others. 1 John chapter 4, verse 20 says, If anyone loves God, or says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. So the next several things we're going to talk about, whether it's marriage, whether it's taking care of each other, these all apply to this concept is that we have to love one another. In our study in Thessalonians, we talked about how one day we're all going to be united together in heaven. Why do we think, or why do sometimes we think we don't need to get along here? We are going to spend eternity, Lord willing, with God together. We need to show love toward our brethren now. Verse 2, this is kind of an extension of that, of that point. Do not forget to entertain strangers. For by doing so, some have unwittingly entertained angels. So I believe as he addresses these next couple comments, these strangers, and as he shows... Next, I believe he's referencing specifically Christians. So I believe he's talking about Christian strangers, people who you do not know, and extending them hospitality. And I'll, I'll go further with that in a minute. But he says, for by doing so, some have unwittingly entertained angels. And Frank repeats this a lot, so I'm going to say it just like he said it. I believe the application of this is that we never know the long-lasting and the unexpected effects of what hospitality towards others and specifically strangers can bring. Now, we don't have any New Testament accounts like uh, people being visited by angels uh, in this way, but we do hear about several in the Old Testament with Moses in Genesis chapter 18 and with Lot in Genesis chapter 19, where these people thought they were just showing hospitality to these passerbys, and it turned out, after all, these were angels that they had in their homes. These were angels that they were taking care of. And, and so we never know, I think the big point is, we never know what comes from good hospitality from anyone we might show it to. So as I said, I believe this is speaking of brothers and sisters in the faith specifically. So my mind goes to uh, people who might pass by that you, we have no clue, we don't know anything about. But I also think this applies to people who are in this congregation. There are people in this room who are stranger to you, possibly. You might not know much about someone who is in this room. You might not know, or maybe you don't care that much about them yet. It is our responsibility to show love and to entertain these, to show hospitality, to, to invest time in, and to take care of others. And so if there are people in this room, I encourage you and I will make it my own goal. Get to know people who are in this room. Take care of each other in this room, as well as people who you might not know who are Christians passing by. But as I was studying this, I'd never want to, I never want to uh, classify away our responsibility to serve others. And as I was thinking about this, I was reminded of what Jesus said in Luke chapter 10. I don't have these verses on the board because it was really a last-minute addition that I just couldn't leave out. When Jesus is approached by, it says, a certain lawyer, Jesus was there teaching and said, a behold, a certain And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? 
He said to him, what is, was, what is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your strength, and with your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, this lawyer, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? This man, he had a key error it reveals is that he wanted to justify himself. So may we be careful when we look at passages that require something of us to serve others, to take care of others, that we don't seek to justify and say, well, I'm good where I'm at, so how can I reason this to where I'm just fine where I sit now? The, the, often the phrase is, our job as teachers is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. And so if we feel comfortable when we read the word, that's not God's intention. When we are challenged by scripture. And so this man, this lawyer, he wanted to justify what he was already doing. He wanted to justify himself. And so he asked, who is my neighbor? Basically classifying things in a way that, well, am I doing it already? But it's just the neighbor that I'm supposed to take care of. I'm already taking care of them. And Jesus responds with the parable. He says, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed. So we have this man from Jerusalem who is attacked on the road. And he left him half dead. Now by chance a certain priest came down the road. So here's a man of God. A priest comes through. Surely he'll take care of this man. But he passed by on the other side when he saw him. Verse 32, likewise a Levite. So this is a specific family of the Jews who is revered for their role in, uh, in the priesthood, the Levites. A Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. So two people so far have come through and seen this man who was hurt and just walked by. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? The lawyer responded, he who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. I am challenged by the scripture to entertain strangers. And I do believe in context. It's speaking specifically about our brothers and sisters who we might not know. And maybe even like the Samaritan who might have been looked down on by other people. But I never want to classify or explain away our need to be hospitable, caring people who serve the world around us. Jesus said, I didn't come to serve Myself, or I didn't come to be served, but to serve others. I didn't come to be served, I came to serve. So our job is, this is important in our world, that we have a perspective, we have a lifestyle, and we have a mindset to serve others, even those who are strangers to us. So I hope that we will all be challenged by this, and as I try to find ways that this applies directly to my own life, I, need, I had to say a prayer to myself about this. That I will have opportunity, that I will take opportunity when it is my job and when it is my opportunity to serve those 
who come in my path like this Samaritan. So I hope you will consider that for yourself. Verse 3. Remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. So another hint why I believe he's talking specifically about Christians is because he wouldn't say any prisoners are mistreated. The people who are mistreated are the people who, for the gospel's sake, and who people who during this time were in prison and mistreated. People who are in prison rightfully for crimes are not mistreated. The government is there to punish those who are wrongdoers, and, and that's not mistreatment. But prisoners for who the gospel are imprisoned, they are mistreated. And he says to remember them, since you yourselves are in the body also. I think this can mean two things. They are also in the body of Christ. But I also believe this is maybe the more, uh, the more pointed point, is that they are also in the body. They are also going through this earthly experience with us. They are also suffering things, suffering alongside us in our Christian walk. It's interesting that um, in light of the idea that, you know, they're in the body or they are still alive, they're going through this earthly experience that we are having. He makes a distinction because the world does not distinct, make distinctions between our earthly life and our heavenly life. And when, it, when you think about it like that, I don't remember ever or hardly ever hearing someone say, you know, in this life, but in the next life, this. People don't think about or don't talk about the heavenly life beyond this life. And so all our problems get bigger and they pile up and the issues seem insurmountable in our world. But when we remember that we're just in the body for now, we don't have to solve all the problems of this world because we are just in the body for a time and we are going to eternity later. These people who were imprisoned were suffering alongside them and he says to remember them. And I think you and I need to, number one, remember those who overseas especially might be in prison for the gospel. To pray for them. To find ways, and maybe that's an area we need to improve, is find ways to strengthen and encourage others who are in this position. Because I know personally, I don't know of many people in, the, in those positions. But I know the gospel is not free everywhere in the world. And I think several people, uh, a bunch of people in this congregation do a good job of mentioning them in their prayers. But I also think it's a good opportunity to reach people who are in prison with the gospel. There are people who are being baptized in prisons around the world. There are people who are being reached with the gospel in prisons. And so uh, that is another opportunity maybe that we can uh, find our way into as a church. Verse 4. Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. So the fourth thing, a fourth pillar of Christianity that he wanted them to focus on and uphold, as they were reasoning through the transition from the old law to the new law, he's affirming their need to focus on honoring marriage. Now the phrase here, it almost looks like he's just saying it, marriage is honorable. But the way the wording is in the Greek, it's more like hold marriage in honor. Honor marriage among you. And he's, because he's saying the bed is undefiled. Now that's referencing uh, sexual relationships. But on the other hand, fornicators, those who engage in sexual relationships outside of marriage, before marriage, for, are fornicators and adulterers are those who break the bonds of a marriage, whether inside or intruding upon the, the bonds of marriage. He said these people, God will judge. In contrast to how honorable marriage is, 
Marriage is a pure, beautiful thing, and he wants them to honor that, uphold that as a foundation of their faith. It is our job as a church to uphold the honor of the sacred covenant of marriage because the marriage is dishonored in many ways around us. And maybe we've even made these mistakes. But marriage is dishonored by divorce. In its many forms, God never intends man to get divorced. So even in the situations where one of the parties needs to do that, marriage is still dishonored by uh, by, the, by the separation. Marriage is dishonored by living together outside of marriage, like we just read on the last slide. Marriage is dishonored by adultery. It's dishonored by neglect, and it's dishonored by redefinition. Our culture wants to redefine what a marriage is, and our job as a church is in all these ways to keep marriage honored, to keep it set apart and respected. And even if you're not someone who is able to enjoy the benefits of a strong marriage, or a marriage at all, we can still hold it in honor, and we can still respect it and defend the, the position that it holds in the world and in our lives. <clears throat> Verse 5, let your conduct be without covetousness. So the fifth kind of foundation he's teaching, be content with such things as you have. So these two are opposites. To covet another's goods is to want something that someone else has, and to have it as your conduct is to almost be, that's what you're about. The commentators I was reading about were talking about how this is a, a life's motivation to get gain and to get things. And coveting can often be that someone else has. But instead of that, don't seek for all these treasures in life and for focusing on the, the earthly things, but be content with such things as you have. Be content with such things as you have. That doesn't mean you don't work hard to make improvements in your life. That doesn't mean you don't go to school if you want to get a better job. It doesn't mean you don't try to advance and work hard hours for your family or for whoever it is. But in the middle of that, we have to fight to keep contentment. We have to fight to keep our minds in a place that at the end of the day, I am thankful and at peace with what I have. Because I can live, I can budget within the means that God has given me. Be content with such things as you have. Because, he says, for he himself has said. He himself is capitalized. That's not the writer. That's not Paul. God himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Do we have sufficiency in Christ? Do we have sufficiency in our God to trust that he will never leave us or forsake us? Darren prayed, God's not always going to give us this perfect life, this bed of roses. But... He has promised to never leave us or let us be forsaken. May we remember that as we strive for contentment, to take our contentment from God. The writer wants them to remember that as they change and as the danger of leaving Christ grows, they must know it is not Jesus who changes. We're going to get, he's going to speak on this a little more in just a minute. But this passage, uh, I will never leave you nor forsake you, is a quote the Hebrew writer keeps taking them back to the Old Testament from Deuteronomy 31, verse 6. Be strong and of good courage. As Joshua was the one taking uh, leadership in this situation, he was told to be strong and of good courage. To not be afraid. Uh, do not fear nor be afraid of them. For the Lord your God, He is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. That promise is carried on throughout generations. So we may boldly say, so in response to that, we may boldly say, 
The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? There is a peace that passes understanding, the, the writer says, that comes from knowing that you have God on your side, that comes from knowing the Lord is my helper. And as things get tough and as you need to reach out to something for help, who is your helper? Is the Lord your helper? Because in that case, what can man really do to me? What can anybody do to me if God is my helper? This comes from Psalm 118. Verse 1 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His mercy endures forever. Let Israel now say, His mercy endures forever. Let the house of Aaron now say, His mercy endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord now say, His mercy endures forever. I called on the Lord in distress. The Lord answered me and set me in a broad place. Oftentimes, uh, David is described as in a cave and hiding and in secrecy, afraid of the things that were around him. But he says here, the Lord has answered me and set me in a broad place, a place of peace and openness. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. Here's the quote. What can man do to me? Verse 7 says, remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of your conduct. Okay, so let's, let's break this down. Those who rule over you. He classifies this, you know, how do you know whether this is the government or how do you know this is, who's, who's he talking about? He says those who have spoken the word of God to you. That is the religious leaders or the congregational leaders. So in every congregation, we have autonomous um, leadership. And we have others, maybe from other congregations, that have taught us God's word. And he says to remember them who have spoken the word of God to you. He said, whose faith follow. Follow their faith. And specifically for the Jews, follow their faith in making this transition from the old law to the new law. That took a big jump of faith for them, considering the outcome of their conduct. This is an important part of the Bible says, by, your, by their fruits, leaders' fruits, we shall know them. So if leaders have fruits that are evil, we will know that by their fruits. If their works are evil, we will know that by their fruits. But consider the outcome of people's conduct before you follow or before you imitate them as they seek to imitate Christ. Verse 8. In light of this, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. No matter what the people who have led you have done, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he's going to say, do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines. So things that may change, and for these Jews specifically, their devotion was changing. And our devotion may change. Our confidence may change. Our perception of God, our perception of His ways, our perception of our responsibility, our whole worldview can change. Our bravery in standing for truth might change. And specifically, he's going to say next, the things others teach may change. The doctrines other people try to introduce into the church may change. But Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We can have hope in the fact that Jesus is unchanging. Jesus will never change. Verse 9, do not, be carried, do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines. 
There's a lot of things, even from the early church, we started to read in Thessalonians in our afternoon study that they started to change things early on. It was already brewing from the time the church was set up. We learned that the whole point that we need to take away from that is we have to love the truth. Those who do not love the truth will exchange it for a lie. If we do not individually love truth, we will be susceptible and we will contribute to leaving the truth. Don't be carried about with various and strange doctrines. The antidote is to love truth above anything any man might say. For it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not been profited those who have been occupied with them. So specifically to these Jews, they were likely facing some kind of hybrid laws or some kind of go back to the Old Testament sacrifices or systems or holy days. They were trying to draw them back into Judaism. These foods, these sacrifices, and uh, these offerings. He says, don't be drawn away into different doctrines like that. Because these foods have no profit for those people. It's not doing them any good. He says he wants them to instead have their hearts established by grace. Grace has a powerful way. And God's grace through the blood of Jesus has a powerful way of establishing our hearts if we will let it. But it's easy to see here that, that people often don't let grace establish their hearts. We have trouble as humans letting grace establish our hearts. Maybe May we focus on letting grace settle and comfort and strengthen our hearts and dwell on that. Dwell on the grace of God that passes understanding that gives us peace. And the grace of God that would make a sacrifice for us that we don't have to live in continual sacrifice for ourselves like the Old Testament but that we would rely on the grace given through Jesus Christ and His sacrifice for us. These things did not profit those who have been occupied with them. We have an altar. We as Christians have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. So if there are people who are offering sacrifices on an altar during, the Old Test or then during this transition, there's Jews offering sacrifices on an altar, we have an altar for which those who serve at those tabernacles doing those sacrifices still, they have no right to eat. They have no right to enjoy the blessings of Jesus and His sacrifice if they're going to hold on to the Old Testament sacrifices and those systems. We have an altar. He's trying to separate them and show them that we have something to replace what they're missing. They are missing those things that they believed were right in the Old Testament. There's no sacrifice. What do I do? He says, we have an altar for the bodies of those animals, those Old Testament sacrifices they're trying to continue, those bodies whose blood is brought into the sanctuary. So the blood of an animal, when the animal was killed, it, it, they would bring its blood into the sanctuary to do their services in the temple. And he says, those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary, God's presence, by the high priest for sin, those bodies are burned outside the camp. Those bodies are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, here's our replacement for that, that he might sanctify or to make holy or to set us apart, to sanctify and set apart the people with his own blood suffered outside the gate. As we consider how Jesus was sacrificed, he left the city of Jerusalem. 
he left the city. He was marched out of town to a hill called Golgotha, outside of the city, where he would be crucified. Just like those Old Testament sacrifices were taken way outside the camp, and that was a symbol of suffering, that they would be kicked out and cast out, Jesus himself took that suffering on himself, left the city, and was crucified outside the gate. He suffered outside the gate. And so if these Jews were feeling distanced or separated from their fellow countrymen in Judaism who had not left Judaism, if they were feeling separate from them and wanting to go back to Judaism, he could say Jesus suffered in this way. He was cast out. He was left set apart from others. And he went outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him. Let us join Jesus outside the camp, bearing his reproach. The reproach of Jesus is that we take on whatever challenges might come our way as a result of being a Christian. Whether it's personal sacrifice, whether it's uh, reproach from others. Reproach just basically means the suffering or maybe the, uh, the things that might come to you from other people. The disdain or disregard or looking down on you from other people. We should take that head on. Take that head on. Because Jesus went outside the gate. We can share in his sufferings, the Bible says, if we take that on. For here we have no continuing city. They wanted Jerusalem back probably. But we don't have a city that stays. Even Jerusalem is going to be burned up one day. In the last day uh, when, when the earth is destroyed. But we seek the one to come. We don't have a city that's going to stay here. The ground is going to melt from underneath our feet. But we seek the one to come. Therefore by him, by Jesus, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips. Giving thanks to his name. There's multiple ways we can offer thanks to God and the fruit of our lips. We can speak these things into the world, but being here to praise God in song is a primary one that we do that, a uh, primary way that we do that. Now, those sacrifices, we don't have to offer animal sacrifices. We offer the sacrifice of our lips. And how should we do it? Well, like the Old Testament sacrifices, they were offered continually, but we don't have to kill animals continually. We are to continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. I was talking to someone this week who said, man, it, they were just talking about how hard it was to think about animals being killed continually for a sacrifice. We should be thankful we don't have to do that. And that our sacrifice takes the form of an outward expression of our thankfulness to God. And to remember that things that don't cost us anything aren't, often aren't sacrifice. And if we get to the point that we are suffering something or losing something in order to praise God, that's how, part of how you know it's a sacrifice. If you have to suffer anything for God, that's part of being a sacrifice. That's why when David said in the Old Testament, he was offered the opportunity to get a piece of land to, uh, to make these sacrifices, and, and it could be given to him freely from the landowner. David said, no, I'm not going to take that for free. I'm not just going to let you give me that land to sacrifice to God, because something that, if I don't pay something for it, it's not a sacrifice. I don't want to give to the Lord something that's not worth anything to me. If we give the Lord something that's not worth anything to us, it's not a sacrifice. It's our extras. It's our cast off. It's our spare change, you might say, in whatever area of life. 
David said, I'm not going to give the Lord something that doesn't cost me anything. I know that I can serve God with something that costs me something, and that is a pleasing sacrifice to God. And on the note of uh, using our lips to praise God, I came across this quote. It says, loving hearts must speak. What would you think of a husband who never felt any impulse to tell his wife that she was dear to him? Or a mother who never found it needful to unpack her heart of its tenderness, even in perhaps the inarticulate croonings over the little child that she presses to her heart? It seems to me that a dumb Christian, or a Christian who doesn't speak, a man who is thankful for Christ's sacrifice and never feels the need to say so, is as great an, is as great an anomaly as either of these I have described. It might not be your nature to say a lot, to talk a lot, or maybe even to sing. Maybe singing is weird for you. Especially if you didn't grow up singing in the church, it's, it's probably uncomfortable. But loving hearts for God must speak. We must bring praise to God because that is a pleasing sacrifice to Him. It's part of our responsibility. Now, you don't necessarily have to sing out loud. It doesn't have to come out in a certain volume. But it's our duty to please God in this way. Verse 16, but do not forget... Even though it's important to, uh, to sing with your lips and praise God with your mouth, don't forget to do good also. It's not just about what we say. It's about doing good and to share. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. That reminds me of the song Mike led this morning. Open my hands and teach me to share, to be a servant. It's not just about the words. It's about what we do. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive. For they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. I believe, again, this is talking back about the, the Christian leadership in a congregation. Uh, there was likely elders in these congregations he's talking to. And elders are ordained leaders of a congregation. He says to obey them. Now, we have to be careful with that because it doesn't mean turn off your brain and just follow blindly. But those who... Watch out for your souls who have an honest interest and who are caring about what's going on in your life from a spiritual perspective. He says, listen to them and submit to what they're saying because an honest leader is not getting you to try to submit to them. They're trying to get you to submit to God. And they're trying to get us to obey God, to submit to God and obey God because those who lead in a spiritual and a, and a congregational sense must give account to God. They are those who must give an account and are going to be responsible for the way that they lead. This is a servant leadership. It sounds almost like a rule, like it's a prideful kingship type thing, but it's not. The whole role of, a, of an elder in a congregation is to be a servant leader, a shepherd, and to, follow, to lead by example and not as some person who wants the power. But that's what we do. We submit to one another. That's what love is. Especially for those who lead for a spiritual purpose. Let them do so. Let them lead with joy. And not with grief. For that would be unprofitable for you. It's unprofitable for everyone. If people do not follow good spiritual leadership. Because the person who's not following is not getting the benefits of the spiritual growth that they should. The eternal growth that they should. The relationship doesn't grow as it should. And on top of that, it's unprofitable for the leaders because the leaders want things to go smooth. They want growth to happen. All leaders who have a sincere heart 
want it for the best of all involved. It's not profitable for people to disregard good spiritual leadership for anyone involved. Verse 18, pray for us, the writer says, for we are confident that we have a good conscience in all things desiring to live honorably. We're doing our best. Please pray for us, he says. But I especially urge you to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. The writer here wanted to get back to the Hebrew Christians, and he wanted them to pray uh, for him just so that specifically he could get back to them and, and, uh, and be with them and help them again. So, so far we've gotten these nine-ish foundations. He's told them to love their fellow Christians, to love their brother, to show, to show hospitality to strangers, to remember the prisoners or those who suffer, to honor marriage, to be content and not covetous, to respect and follow leadership, to hold on to truth, and to establish their hearts with grace. And finally, to offer praise to God with thankfulness. And now we're going to finish the letter. Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead. So he's ending his, his letter by giving them the assurance that this is a God of peace that is coming to them. Who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead. Assuring them that, th that this Jesus isn't gone. He's not someone they should leave hope in. They shouldn't just leave their hope in Jesus because he is brought up from the dead. He's not gone. He's still here. That great shepherd of the sheep. Through the blood of the everlasting covenant. There's some more Old Testament references. This is an everlasting covenant he set up for them. Not just the blood of a normal sacrifice. He says, verse 21, uh, May the God of peace, all these things, make you complete in every good work to do his will. God's work has a continual process of refining us. And he wants that to happen for these Hebrew Christians. And may we be complete and perfected as we grow in our Christian walk. And every good work to do His will, working in you what is well-pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. God wants to work in you. He could have done anything He wanted. He could have intervened every second of this world to where things happened the exact way He intended them to happen. But He didn't do that. He chose to let you have choice in how you would let him work in you and how I will let him work in me. What is well-pleasing in his sight. And it's not just to serve this God of the Old Testament. He brings in, it is all through Jesus Christ. They cannot leave Jesus behind in their attempt to serve God. It is all through Jesus Christ to whom this Jesus be glory forever and ever. Amen. And I appeal to you, brethren, bear with the word of exhortation. Take time to think about this. Take time to process and, and let this work on your heart, he's saying. Bear with this word of exhortation. For I have written to you in a few words. Thirteen chapters is quite a bit. I wonder how many, uh, many words it would have been to this writer. He says, I've only written to you in a few words. Know that our brother Timothy has been set free. So some point, maybe in the years between... 59 and 61, Timothy was in prison, but good news to know, he has been set free with whom I shall see you if he comes shortly. So this writer uh, wanted to go with Timothy to see them if he, could be, uh, if he could shortly. Greet all those who rule over you and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. Grace be with you all. 
Amen. And that is the close of the, the book of Hebrews. And he wanted these Christians, these Hebrew Christians, to remember that they, the God of grace was still with them. That they need to hold on to their faith and grow and not slip in their faith. To think back about all the things we've learned about Jesus being superior to everything else we could serve in this world. And that we would turn to him, that they would turn to him and hold on in growth and spiritual, uh, spiritual intentionality and focus as they uh, strove to hold on to him. And I pray that the same will be true for us. That we will take these words and these exhortations and grow ourselves. If you've heard the gospel this morning and you have not responded to it, you can do that today. We learn that we can hear the word of God and by faith, uh, we, to have faith, we have to hear. So we, we can't please God without hearing. We can't please God without believing. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11. And so in that believing, we're supposed to respond in a true uh, faith. To, to confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. To, to change our past life. To repent of who we used to be. To follow God in a new life. And we can be baptized for the remission of our sins. If you haven't started that walk today, you can. You can be added to the church. You can join this walk, this general assembly in Church of the Firstborn. He's talking about being added to is, is wonderful. And we can start that today. But if you've already done that and you need to make something right or you need the prayers of the brethren, we are a family. We are happy to take care of that with you and help you while we stand and while we sing. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.